If you have your Bibles, uh, whether you're using a digital version of that or an analog version of that, um, go ahead and make your way to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're using those black hardcover Bibles that are found underneath your seat, uh, page 952 is where that book begins. Um, today we are starting our new fall series in this book of 1 Corinthians. And just a little bit of background information as you're turning there. Um, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, which is a city in southern Greece, about 50 miles west of Athens. Corinth is a port city. It's a melting pot. Uh, it's a place where there are both Jews and Gentiles from all over the Mediterranean. Uh, and because of its location, it's a very wealthy and it's a very influential city at the time that Paul is writing these words. We read actually in the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 18, that Paul travels to this city sometime during his second missionary journey, sometime around 50 AD, and he stays for 18 months, which if you're familiar with Paul and his missionary journeys at all, that's a lot longer than he normally stays in any one particular place. And after a slow start there in Corinth, he has a really fruitful ministry. And then so when he leaves, he writes several letters back to the church that he left behind there. And we have two of these letters in our scriptures. We know them as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Or if you're a candidate pandering to Christian voters, 1 and 2 Corinthians. You, you caught up with me. It took, took you a second. In 1st Corinthians, uh, Paul addresses a series of problems or issues facing the church. And as we'll see in this series, there are some really strong cultural similarities between Corinth and the West in the 21st century. Uh, there are also some really strong similarities between the problems that the church faced then and that the church faces here today. So in planning this series uh, a couple months back, I thought about calling this series The Problem with Church. The Problem with Church. Uh, but two reasons why I didn't feel like that was the best title that we could give to this series. Um, number one, uh, it isn't really faithful to the tone of what the Apostle Paul writes. You're going to hear in this series, Paul has a deep affection and love for the church. And he is not the person who is like distant and passive, pointing out what's wrong with the church. He's invested in the church. Number two, a title like that, I think, would activate the tendency that is in each of us to indulge our cynicism and our disillusionment with the church. And so let's just put this out on the table from the very first day of this series. If you've experienced the church for more than five minutes, you can point out problems that there are with the church. If you've been around the church for more than five minutes, you see the problems. If you've been around the church for a lot longer than that, you see the problems even more clearly, right? That is not some kind of special spidey sense that only you have. That is more like a participation trophy. If you're in, you see problems with the church. And if you'd like, there's a really well-charted path for you to like start a blog write a book about the beefs that you have, the problems that you, that you observe. Okay, but that's the easy path. That's the easy path. The hard path is to continue to pour in your heart and your life to the real men and women who comprise the church in the midst of all the problems and, and difficulties there are with that. In order to do that, we really have to believe that it's worth it. We have to believe that there's beauty to what God has done and is doing in the church. And Paul does. The whole reason he stays in Corinth much longer than he stays in most cities is because God tells him there are many people in that city who belong to Jesus. And that's the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is that it belongs to Jesus. We are Jesus' people. We are 
men and women created by him, redeemed by him, called to use our lives and our gifts for his glory and the good of others. And the venue in which all of that plays out is the church. And so as we know well, we know experientially, that's messy and it's beautiful. And if we would only give of ourselves to it and commit to one another in spite of the difficulty, the mess actually becomes even more of the process by which we experience more of the beauty. So we're calling this series instead a beautiful mess. And Alethea Malat painted a fantastic piece by the same title that we're using as the backdrop for our series. That's what's on the cover of your uh, bulletin. There's a great story behind that painting. I would really encourage you, if you have a minute, to go to our website and the, uh, the current series page and read the story behind um, that, that artwork. Uh, personally, I'm really looking forward to this series. And I think that's mostly because uh, I have come to know personally that the church is a beautiful mess. I've come to know that reality deeply. Right now, I see the problems that exist in the church more clearly than I ever have. And I not only see them, I'm immersed in them more than I ever have been. I'm affected by them. They cost me more than they ever have in my life before. And at the same time, I'm contributing to them. I'm causing them. And because I sit in this chair serving as a pastor and an elder in Jesus' church, my sin, my shortcomings, my weaknesses, they have a bigger ripple effect and create some of those problems in the church. But at the very same time, I've never been more convinced of the beauty of the church. I've never been more convinced that this is the way by which Jesus will accomplish his good purposes. And my hope for each of you in this series is that rather than taking the easy path and indulging your cynicism and indulging your disillusionment, that you would experience a growing love and appreciation for Jesus' church and, and that you would and that we would together as a church more faithfully become the church that Jesus has established and what he's established the church to be and to do in the world. So with that, I'm going to invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 17 and reading through chapter 2, verse 5. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, it, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, we wish to see Jesus. And we pray that by your Spirit's power, you would give us eyes to see him, to see his glory through these words that Paul has written. And we pray that through Christ. Amen. Paul spends here the majority of these first two chapters talking about a contrast between wisdom and foolishness. And so the problem facing the church we might describe as this. So when the church adopts a worldly paradigm of wisdom, it misses the wisdom of God. And wisdom becomes foolishness, and foolishness becomes wisdom. In this passage, Paul highlights three things uh, which we'll look at with the rest of our time. The foolishness of the gospel message, the foolishness of the gospel's recipients, and the foolishness of preaching the gospel. The gospel message, the gospel's recipients, and the preaching of the gospel. So first, we'll talk about the foolishness of the gospel message. And let me just start by asking you a question, because I know we come from different backgrounds. Many of us in this room have been part of the church, or at least familiar with Christianity for a lot of years. Has the gospel become sterile, safe, and sensible to you? Has the gospel become sterile, safe, and sensible? Some of us are so familiar with core truths of the gospel message, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross in our place, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming again. Some of us are so familiar with that that we have completely lost touch with how crazy, how scandalous, how outright foolish that sounds when you have no context for it, when you hear it for the first time. And not only the first time, how crazy it sounds when you hear it for the hundredth time or the thousandth time, if all you're drawing upon is conventional human wisdom, is merely logic or reason. Verse 21 here is really important because it talks about how we know what we know about God. Verse 21 says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So how do we know what we know about God? We don't know it through conventional human wisdom. We don't know it through reason or ration or logic. We know it through revelation. We know it because God makes himself known, and he makes himself knowable. A word that we will sometimes use for this is condescension, meaning that God comes down, he condescends to us as his created human beings and reveals himself at a level that we can at least understand some of what is true about him. But you see how that's already the complete opposite of conventional human wisdom. Why? Because conventional human wisdom is about independence and self-sufficiency. It's all about me not needing anyone to tell me anything because I can figure it out myself. I don't need your help. I can do this on my own. And so the road here immediately divides 
between conventional human wisdom and the wisdom of God. The trajectory of, of merely human wisdom is away from God. If we can only know God by revelation, that doesn't leave any room for self-sufficiency or independence or arrogance. It means that we will forever be in a humble state, in a humble receiving posture where God reveals and we receive. In the wisdom of God, as Paul says, God is not known through wisdom. So think of it this way. If you and I could reason our way into the knowledge of God, at the end of the day, we wouldn't need God. But if we can only know God as he reveals himself, then we always need God. And at the end of the day, that's the point. That's the point. And this is why the gospel, and specifically the cross of Christ, Jesus' death on the cross, is foolishness to everyone except those who are being saved by it. As Paul says in verse 23, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. What does that mean? Right? These are people with very different backgrounds, very different heritages, but the cross doesn't make sense to any of them. It just confounds them in different specific ways. So the Jews valued power and strength. Right? They were God's chosen people. They were the ones who conquered the promised land by the power of God. They were the ones waiting for a Messiah, and most of them waiting for a Messiah in the political sense, a king who would reclaim power and restore Israel to power. And so the Jews demanded signs. They wanted to see a demonstration of the power of Jesus. His message meant nothing to them if it were not accompanied by strength. And so the cross was this huge stumbling block to the Jews because a suffering and dead Messiah is not a powerful one. Right? That's weakness. That's defeat. And actually, a crucified Messiah would be a contradiction in terms completely. There's no category. It's like, which one is it? Are you killed in the most shame-filled way possible, or are you the one who's come to reclaim power for the people of God? It can't be both. So the gospel of Christ crucified was really offensive to the Jews. On the other hand, the Greeks valued wisdom. They're a civilized, cultured people. They seek to know all there is to know about everything. History, philosophy, astronomy, religion. It's this unquenchable thirst for wisdom, and so they keep seeking. So to the Greeks, the cross is folly. It's stupidity. Like, why would God ever become a man only to die? Did humanity even need saving in the first place? And if so... Don't they have the tools at their disposal to, to solve the problem themselves? Can't they learn themselves and figure it out? They're, they're human beings after all. They're, they have the capacity to, to learn these things and to do that for themselves. And so Paul, preaching dependence and faith in a God-man who took on flesh in order to die, in order to rise, in order to save, is offensive because it's inconceivable. Right? It makes no sense at all. Now in some ways... The world today has changed very little from this world in which, into which Paul writes. Power and wisdom are still, in our day, predominant values. We might rightfully call them the idols of our, of our time or of our culture. Right? We don't have gold likenesses and temples to these things per se, but along with money and achievement and status, these are the common false gods to whom to which we devote our lives. And the point that Paul is making to the Corinthian church, the point that holds true for us today, centuries later, is that if we try to understand God through the grid 
of our predominant cultural idols, we'll miss the gospel. We'll call the wisdom of God foolishness, and we'll call the foolishness of the world wisdom. And so two takeaways for us here. One for for any of you, those of you who already believe that the cross is the wisdom and power of God, and then one for those who don't believe that. For those of you who do believe that, where have you turned back around and tried to make compatible that which is fundamentally incompatible? God and idols cannot coexist as the recipients of our devotion. Jesus himself says we can't serve two masters. We can't serve both God and money or God and achievement or God and wisdom or power and, or status. If the gospel message has become to us sterile, safe, or sensible, it might very well be because we become desensitized to how drastically different the gospel is from what we perceive and absorb from our culture around us all the time. One of the best diagnostics that's challenged me on this very topic is a question from an author and a speaker named Francis Chan. And he asked this at one point. He says, does your life make too much sense? Does your life make too much sense? And he's not saying there, like, throw wisdom and prudence to the wind. He's saying, if everything in our life always makes sense to the people in the world and the culture in which we live, something has gone very wrong. But the gospel didn't make sense to the people in Corinth. And that was the evidence that it was truly the wisdom of God. If our lives always make sense, that means at the end of the day, we have functionally come to believe that Jesus and the idols of our day are compatible, and they're not. For those of you who don't believe, if as you've thought about what to do with Jesus, as if you've wrestled with that at all, if you've landed in a place where you're thinking something like, I'm just going to wait a while until I figure this all out. My humble submission to you is that it's actually a safer bet that you never figure this out. That you never figure this out. Right? Under, and, I, and I know this because I do this too. Underneath this idea of figuring it out is a desire or a demand that God has to make sense according to my perspective and my understanding of the world. But Paul's whole point in this text is that God doesn't make sense. The ultimate picture of wisdom and the, the wisdom and power of God is Jesus crucified. The way that God grows his people most is through suffering. The way the church grows and advances most in the history of the world is through persecution. It has never been conventional human wisdom. So I just want to invite you, you can be free from the captivity of wanting to figure it all out and waiting to figure it all out. And like me, like others here, we need a new framework. And to get that framework from day one actually requires a humbling of ourselves and submitting ourselves to to search out and to find out what God has revealed of himself. So that's the foolishness of the gospel message. Second, let's talk about the foolishness of the gospel's recipients. Verses 26 through 31 shift from talking about the message to the gospel's recipients. Paul reminds the the Corinthian Christians here who they are. But listen to how this is played out. When they came to believe in Jesus, they weren't wise... They weren't powerful, and yet they've come to a place where Paul is having to warn them of the danger of adopting cultural idols, the the, the cultural idols of wisdom and power, into their understanding of God. What happened along the way? Well, it's the very same thing that happens to us in our day, and that's that's, 
That is that we always want to come to God with something in our hands. We always want to come to God with something in our hands. We always want to present something to Him in order to earn His love and favor. The consistent testimony of Scripture, though, is that the gospel is the free gift of God's grace. It's not just undeserved, it's actually ill-deserved. And it can't be earned in any way, shape, or form. Now that is sweet relief to one group of people and disgustingly offensive to another group of people. If you're a nobody, that's a huge relief because you've got nothing anyway. But if you're a somebody and God levels the playing field like that and all the hard work that you have put in and all the sacrifices that you've made to become a somebody, that all of a sudden counts for nothing anymore. What advantage do I have over everybody else anymore? The answer is none. And that's really offensive because all we have is the offense and folly of a crucified Christ. There's this progression that happens when the gospel penetrates a society. You study the history of the church. When when the church comes to a particular people, it is almost always birthed as a counterculture among those for whom the predominant cultural values aren't working. And that fits with what Paul says here because those are the nobodies. They're the ones most aware that they have nothing in their hands to bring to God. And that's what's happened in Corinth. God chose the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. But then what happens is that the church spreads and grows, sometimes really quickly to the point where it permeates a society. And as it does, as people from upper echelons of society become Christians, or as nobodies become somebodies for whatever reason, there's this pull to absorb these cultural idols into a warped view of the gospel to try and take whatever has made you successful and given you status and to present that to God as some kind of credit to your account. And all of a sudden now, it's no longer the wisdom and power of God. It's another message heralded by people who've forgotten who they are. We have the same problem as the Corinthians. And I don't just mean like we generally. I mean you and me in this room. Very few of us in this room find ourselves find ourselves among the marginalized, oppressed nobodies of our society. And so guaranteed, you and I will try to come to God with something in our hands. Even though we might know that's not the way it works. Because it's worked for us in so many other avenues of our lives, in so many other times in the past, we'll still try to do it over and over again. Now maybe we didn't do that when we first came. Maybe there was something going on in our lives, when we first came to faith in Christ, that that humbled us to the point where we thought, I am a nobody. We need to remember that. We need to remember that, that not just then, but also now and always, our only boast as Christians is the finished work of Christ. Third verse of the hymn, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me. Third verse of that hymn speaks exactly to this reality. It goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Whether you're a nobody or a somebody, do you believe this is true about you? And as you think about this, Ask yourself this question. 
What is in your hands right now? What are you trying to bring to God? What are you trying to boast in? Is it your status? Is it your abilities? Is it your charitable giving? Is it your your record of acts of service and care for other people? And if if you're a Christian and you say, you know, God is really lucky to have me on his team because, how do you fill in the blank? Or if you're not a Christian and you say, God would be really lucky to have me on his team because, how would you fill in that blank? That's not the gospel. However we fill in the blank, and I do it too, that's not the gospel. The gospel says we bring nothing on the first day we believe and we bring nothing on every single day after that. Third, let's talk about the foolishness of preaching the gospel. The bookends of this passage, verse 17, and then those first few verses of chapter 2, it's about Paul's preaching. He shares the good news of Jesus, not with words of eloquent wisdom, but as a demonstration of the power of God. So in the eyes of the world, there's a foolishness to the gospel message itself, there's a foolishness to the recipients of the message, and there's even a foolishness to the means by which that message comes. So two points that I want to make uh, about this. First, as Christians who want other people to believe the gospel, let, me, let this encourage and embolden you to open your mouths. Let Paul's words here encourage and embolden you to open your mouths. Many of us get held hostage by a perceived need for over-preparedness. But we don't have to be public speakers or seminary-trained theologians or apologetics and history buffs in order to talk with other people meaningfully about Jesus. Paul is one of the best missionaries in the history of the world. When he comes to Corinth, how does he come? In weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. I can relate and resonate with Paul on that. And I think I always will when it comes to opening my mouth to talk about Jesus. There's always going to be some kind of measure of, I'm too weak for this, and I'm a little bit fearful about this, and I'm trembling about this. You're in good company if you experience these things when you think about talking with other people about Jesus. So like Paul, in the midst of the weakness, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the trembling, go and be present among people, Pass along the good news as you have received it. And as strange as it might sound, take heart that you and I are neither able nor meant to remove the offense that's inherently part of the gospel. If it is the faithful gospel and not one that's been tainted by cultural idols, it will be a stumbling block in folly to other people regardless of how polished or eloquent or plausible my words are or your words are. So let this embolden and encourage you to open your mouths about Jesus. Second, labor intentionally to share the gospel well. And this is where this text can get misread and misapplied. This text has actually been used at times to promote an anti-intellectualism. It's more often used actually to justify what I call under-preparation. But Paul's approach here to preaching the gospel in Corinth, it's, it's all about preparation. This is Paul not just kind of winging it, like I decided to know nothing among you. He's not just like winging it. This is Paul making a conscious decision to talk about Jesus in such a way that it doesn't play into the predominant cultural idols of Corinth. 
Right? Corinth has itinerant speakers come through every single day who have great rhetoric and they make great speeches. And what happens? People laud them for it. They become celebrities in that culture just like ours. So if Paul had come to Corinth and shared the gospel in the same way, then the gospel sounds like just another episode of the human wisdom they hear every single day. So think of it this way. This would be like binge-watching TED Talks. Okay? After like the third or fourth one, you're, you're like, wow, that was really good. That person's really smart. Next. And you move on that fast. It doesn't cut to the heart at all. And at the end of the day, it becomes more of a testament to that person's smarts than it does to anything else. In other cities on his journeys, Paul uses a lot of rhetoric and some great speeches and oratory skill. He always, here's the point, he always labors so that his approach has the greatest possible chance of reaching the hearts and minds of the people in any particular cultural context. He's making an intentional choice to do it this way in the city of Corinth. So for us, be free from an over-preparedness mentality that says you must learn You must learn more and know more before you can talk about Jesus. Likewise, be free from an under-preparedness mentality that says you don't need to labor intentionally to do it well. Because in both, we're making ourselves the issue. In both, at the end of the day, it's about me and my preparedness. For Paul here, the whole point is that it's not about him. And likewise for us as Christians, the aim is never for us to become great ourselves, The aim is always to point the way to the greatness of Jesus. So we prepare well in order to get out of the way. We prepare well so that at the end of the day, people aren't thinking, wow, that was the best talk I ever heard, or wow, that was the worst talk I ever heard. We prepare well so at the end of the day, others might be left considering, who is this Jesus of whom they speak? So what do we learn from these first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. We learn that the gospel is a foolish foolish message received by foolish people who then share it foolishly. Or maybe a better way to see it. That the gospel is the wisdom of Jesus crucified, rescuing those with the wisdom to empty their hands so that both our faith and the faith of those who hear through us rests on the wisdom and power of of God. And this is the bedrock of the beautiful mess that we call the church. It defies conventional human wisdom. If you and I were sitting down, blue sky brainstorming today of what's the bright plan for God to pursue to make his name known in the world, to make his kingdom tangible in some way in the world, we would not come up with the church. There there would be other plans that make more sense. It is made up of nobodies whose only qualification for being there in the first place is that we cannot, but that Jesus can and has. And the church's mission is that we, messy works in progress that we are, are sent out so that God will multiply his work through us, even though we ourselves are far from complete. That is and will forever be a beautiful mess because it comes from God and it comes to and through us, which means there is no other way that it possibly could be except beautiful and messy all the time at exactly the same time. So may we surrender ourselves to the wisdom and power of God 
And may our faith always rest in him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we confess your wisdom is so far beyond ours, mine, that it confounds us at times. Confess also that my familiarity with it at times makes me desensitized to just how different it is from what I experience in this culture around me. And so I pray that you would, through Paul's words, through the folly of the cross, through the folly of Jesus, of you crucified for us, that we would be reawakened to just how radical a message this is, that we would see just how audacious it is that you would use flawed, broken people as your means of working in the world. That as the world sees the gospel as folly and its recipients as folly and its preaching of the gospel as folly, that we would not, not in an arrogant way, but that we would treasure that folly and that we would cling to it and that it would be a counterculture presence and existence in this world that you love so that others might see the difference, so that it might not make sense to everybody, so they might see the difference and enter your kingdom. Please do that work in us. Resensitize to us to where we've become desensitized. Open our eyes to where we are blinded. Help us to see where we have absorbed the idols of our day and the idols of our culture into our understanding of you and the good news of the gospel. And as we come to this table now, strengthen us again for the work that you have called us to and are sending us into. We pray that in your name. Amen.